Silas Strong, Emperor of the Woods by Irving Bachelor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Roger Moline. Silas Strong, Emperor of the Woods by Irving Bachelor. Chapter One to my friend the late archer brown in memory of summer days when we wandered far and sat down to rest by springs and brooks in the doomed empire of strong and talked of saving it and of better times and knew not they were impossible some of the people of these pages when the author endeavored to regulate their conduct according to well-known rules of literary construction declared themselves free and independent when urged by him they tried to speak and act in the fashion of most novels they laughed and seemed to be ashamed of themselves and with good reason they are slow stubborn modest shy and used to the open not for them are the narrow stage the swift action the fine-wrought chain of artful incident that characterize a modern romance of late authors have succeeded rather well in turning people into animals and animals into people why not if one's art can perform miracles this book aims not to emulate or amend the work of the creator its people are just folks of a very old pattern its animals rather common and of small attainments it is in no sense a literary performance it pretends to be nothing more than a simple account of one's summer life pretty much as it was lived in a part of the adirondacks it goes on about as things happen there with a leisurely pace like that of the woods lover on a trail who may be halted by nothing more than a flower or a bird song one day follows another in the old fashion of those places where men go for rest and avarice quits them with bloody spurs and they forget the calendar and measure time on the dial of the heavens the book has one high ambition it has tried to tell the sad story of the wilderness itself to show from the woodsman's viewpoint the play of great forces which have been tearing down his home and turning it into the flesh and bone of cities were it to cause any reader to value what remains of the forest above its market price and to do his part in checking the greed of the saws it would be worth while bad as it is chapter one the song of the saws began long ago at the mouths of the rivers slowly the axes gnawed their way southward and the ominous prophetic chant followed them men seemed to goad the rivers to increase their speed they caught and held and harnessed them as if they had been horses and drove them into flumes and leaped them over dams and pulled and hauled and baffled them until they broke away with the power of madness in their rush but even then the current of the rivers would not do the current of thunderbolts could not have whirled the wheels with speed enough now steam bursts upon the piston head with the power of a hundred horses the hungry steel races through columns of pine 
as if they were soft as butter, and its bass note booms night and day to the heavens. Hear it now. The burden of that old song is more, more, more. It is doleful music, God knows, but mind you, it voices the need of the growing land. It sings of the doom of the woods. It may be heard all along the crumbling edge of the wilderness from Maine to Minnesota. Day by day, hammers beat time while the saws continue their epic chorus. There are towers and spires and domes and high walls where, in our boyhood, there were only trees far older than the century, and these rivers that flow north go naked in open fields for half their journey. Every spring miles of timber come plunging over cataracts and rushing through rapids and crowding into slow water on its way to the saws. There a shaft of pine which has been a hundred years getting its girth is ripped into slices and scattered upon the stack in a minute. A new river, the rushing, steam-driven river of steel, bears it away to the growing cities. Silas Strong once wrote in his old memorandum book these words. Strong says to himself seems so the world was going to be peeled and hollered out and weighed and measured and sold till it's all et up like an apple. On the smooth shore of the river below Raquette Falls and within twenty rods of his great mill lived a man of the name of Gordon with two motherless children pity about him, married a daughter of Bill Strong up in the woods, an excellent woman, made money and wasted it, and went far to the bad. Good fellow, drink, poker, and so on down the hill. His wife died leaving two children, blue-eyed little people with curly flaxen hair, a boy of four, a girl of nearly three years. The boy's full name was John Socksmith Gordon, reduced in familiar parlance to Socky. The girl was baptized Susan Bradbury Gordon, but was called Sue. Their uncle Silas Strong came to the funeral of their mother. He had traveled more than eighty miles in twenty-four hours, his boat now above and now beneath him. He brought his dog and rifle and wore a great steel watch-chain and a pair of moccasins with fringe on the sides and a wolf-skin jacket. He carried the children on his shoulders and tossed them in the air while his great size and odd attire seemed to lay hold of their spirits. As time passed, a halo of romantic splendor gathered about this uncle's memory. One day Saki heard him referred to as the Emperor of the Woods. He was not long finding out that an emperor was a very grand person who wore gold on his head and shoulders and rode a fine horse and was always ready for a fight. So their ideal gathered power and richness, one might say, the longer he lived in their fancy. They loved their father but as a hero he had not been a great success. There was a time when both had entertained some hope for him, 
but as they saw how frequently he grew tired they gave their devotion more and more to this beloved memory their uncle's home was remote from theirs and so his power over them had never been broken by familiarity saki and sue told their young friends all they had been able to learn of their uncle silas and being pressed for more knowledge had recourse to invention stories which their father had told grew into wonder tales of the riches the strength the splendor and the general destructive power of this great man sue the first day she went to sunday school when the minister inquired who slew a lion by the strength of his hands confidently answered uncle silas there was one girl in the village who had an uncle phil with a fine air of authority and a wonderful watch and chain there was yet another with an uncle henry who enjoyed the distinction of having had the smallpox there was a boy also who had an uncle reuben with a wooden leg and a remarkable history and a wen beside his nose with a wart on the same but these were familiar figures and while each had merits of no low degree their advocates were soon put to shame by the charms of that mysterious and remote uncle silas there was a little nook in the lumber yard where children used to meet every saturday for play and free discussion there now and then some newcomer entered an uncle in the competition there always a primitive pride of blood asserted itself in the remote descendants shall we say of many an ancient lord and chieftain one day sue was then five and saki six years of age little cornell put a cousin on exhibit in this little theatre of childhood he was a boy with red hair and superior invention from out of town he stood near lizzie a deep and designing miss and said not a word until sue began about her uncle silas it was a new tale of that remarkable hunter which her father had related the night before while she lay waiting for the sandman she told how her uncle had seen a panther one day when he was traveling without a gun his dog chased the panther and soon drove him up a tree now it seemed the only thing in the nature of a weapon the hunter had with him was a piece of new rope for his canoe after a moment's reflection the great man climbed the tree and threw a noose over the panther's neck while his faithful dog was barking below then the cute uncle silas made his rope fast to a limb and shook the tree so that when the panther jumped for the ground he hung himself to most of those who heard the narrative it seemed to be a rather creditable exploit showing as it did a shrewdness and ready courage of no mean order on the part of uncle silas murmurs of glad approval were hushed however by the voice of the red-headed boy pooh that's nothing said he with contempt my uncle mose chased a panther once and overtook him and catched him by the tail and fetched his head against a tree quick as a flash and knocked his brains out his words ran glibly and showed an offhand mastery of panthers quite unequaled 
here was an uncle of marked superiority and promise there was a moment of silence in the crowd if you don't believe it said the red-headed boy i can show you a vest my mother made of the skin that was conclusive sue blushed for shame and looked into the face of saki her mouth drooped a little and her underlip trembled with anxiety doubt thoughtfulness and confusion were on the face of her brother he scraped the sand with his foot he felt that he had sometimes stretched the truth a little but this this went beyond his capacity for invention don't believe it he whispered with half a sneer as he glanced down at sue lizzie cornell began to titter all eyes were fixed upon the unhappy pair as if to say how about your uncle silas now the populace deserting the standard of the old king gathered in front of the red-headed boy and began to inquire into the merits of uncle mose saki and sue hesitated curiosity struggled with resentment slowly and thoughtfully they walked away for a moment neither spoke soon a cheering thought came into the mind of sue maybe uncle silas has catched a panther by the tail too said she hopefully saki his hands in his pockets looked down with a dazed expression i'm going to ask father said he thoughtfully it was now late in the afternoon they went home and sat in silence on the veranda watching for their father the old frenchwoman who kept house for him tried to coax them in but they would make no words with her long they sat there looking wistfully down the river bank presently sue hauled out of her pocket a tiny rag doll which she carried for casual use it came handy in moments of loneliness and despair outside the house she toyed with its garments humming in a motherly fashion it was nearly dark when they saw their father staggering homeward according to his habit they knew not yet the meaning of that wavering walk there he comes said saki as they both ran to meet him he can't carry us tonight. he's awful tired they thought him tired they kissed him and took his hands in theirs and led him into the house stern and silent he sat down beside them at the supper table the children were also silent and sober-faced from intuitive sympathy they could not yet introduce the topic which weighed upon them saki looked at his father for the first time he noted that his clothes were shabby he knew that a few days before his father had lost his watch the boy stole away from the table and went to his little trunk and brought the sacred thing which his teacher had given him christmas day a cheap watch that told time with a noisy and inspiring tick he laid it down by his father's plate there said he i'm going to let you wear my watch it was one of those deep thrusts which only the hand of innocence can administer richard gordon took the watch in his hand 
and sat a moment, looking down. The boy manfully resumed his chair. "'It don't look very well for you to be going around without a watch,' he remarked, taking up his piece of bread and butter. His father put the watch in his pocket. "'You can let me wear it Sundays,' the boy added. "'You won't need it Sundays.' A smile overspread the man's face. The children, quick to see their opportunity, approached him on either side. She put her arms around the neck of her father and kissed him. "'Tell us a story about Uncle Silas,' she pleaded. "'Uncle Silas!' he exclaimed. "'We're all going to see him in a few days.' The children were mute with surprise. Sue's little doll dropped from her hands to the floor. Her face changed color, and she turned quickly with a loud cry and drummed on the table so that the dishes rattled. Socky leaned over the back of a chair and shook his head and gave his feet a fling and then recovered his dignity. "'Now don't get excited,' remarked their father. They ran out of the room and stood laughing and whispering together for a moment. Then they rushed back. "'When are we going?' the boy inquired. "'In a day or two, said Gordon, who still sat drinking his tea. Sue ran to tell Aunt Marie, the housekeeper, and Saki sat in his little rocking chair for a moment of sober thought. "'Look here, old chap.' said Gordon, who was wont to apply the terms of mature good fellowship to his little son. Saki came and stood by the side of his father. "'You and I have been friends for some time, haven't we?' was the strange and half-maudlin query which Gordon put to his son. The boy smiled and came nearer. "'And I've always treated you right, ain't I? Answer me.' "'Yes, sir.' "'Well, folks say you're neglected, and that you don't have decent clothes, and that you might as well have no father at all. Now, old boy, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm broke, failed in business, and have had to give up. Understand me, I haven't a cent in the world.' The man smote his empty pocket suggestively. The boy was now deeply serious. Not able to comprehend the full purport of his father's words, he saw something in the face before him which began to hurt. His lower lip trembled a little. "'Don't worry, old friend,' said Gordon, clapping him on the shoulder. Just then Sue came running back. "'Say,' said she, climbing on a round of her father's chair, did Uncle Silas ever catch a panther by the tail? The children held their breaths, waiting for the answer. "'Catch a panther by the tail!' their father exclaimed. "'Whatever put that in your head?' Sue answered with some show of excitement. Her words came fast. "'Lizzie Cornell's cousin, he said that his Uncle Mose had catched a panther by the tail and knocked his brains out. Their father smiled again. "'That kind of floored you, didn't it, old girl?' 
said he with a kiss let's see he continued drawing the children close on either side of him i don't know as he ever ketched a panther by the tail but i'll tell you what he did do one day when he hadn't any gun with him he come across a big bear and uncle sile fetched him a cuff with his fist and broke the bear's neck and then he brought him home on his back and et him for dinner oh the girl exclaimed her mouth and eyes wide open saki whistled a shrill note of surprise and thankfulness then he clucked after the manner of one starting his horse my stars he exclaimed and so saying he skipped across the floor and brought his fist down heavily upon the lounge uncle silas had been saved plucked as it were from the very jaws of obscurity when they were ready to get into bed the children knelt as usual before old aunt marie the housekeeper she ventured to add a sentence to her prayer god bless uncle silas said she and make him very very the girl hesitated trying to find the right word powerful her brother suggested still in the attitude of devotion powerful repeated sue in a trembling voice and then added for christ's sake amen they lay a long time discussing what they should say and do when at last they were come into the presence of the great man suddenly a notion entered the mind of saki that in order to keep the favor of fortune he must rise and clap his hand three times upon the round top of the posts at the foot of the bed accordingly he rose and satisfied this truly pagan impulse then he repeated the story of his uncle and the bear over and over again pausing thoughtfully at the point of severest action and adding a little color to heighten the effect here and there sue prompted him and details arose which seemed to merit careful consideration i wouldn't wonder but what uncle silas must a spit on his hand before he struck the bear said saki remembering how strong men often prepared themselves for a difficult undertaking when the story had been amplified in a generous degree and well committed to memory they began to talk of lizzie cornell and her cousin the red-headed boy and planned how they would seek them out next day and defy them with the last great achievement of their uncle silas he's a nasty thing the girl exclaimed suddenly i feel kind of sorry for him said saki with a sigh why cause he thinks his uncle beats the world and he ain't nowhere maybe he'll want to fight said sue then i'll fetch him a cuff suppose he was to break his neck i'll hit him in the breast said saki thoughtfully feeling his muscle sue soon fell asleep but saki lay thinking about his father he had crossed the edge of the beginning of trouble he thought of those words and of a certain look which accompanied them 
I haven't got a cent in the world. What did they mean? He could only judge from experience, from moments when he had stood looking through glass windows and showcases at things which had tempted him and which he had not been able to enjoy. Oh, the bitter pain of it! Must his father endure that kind of thing? He lay for a few moments weeping silently. All at once the thought of this little bank came to him. It was nearly full of pennies. He rose in bed and listened. The room was dark, but he could hear Aunt Marie at work in the kitchen. That gave him courage, and he crept stealthily out of bed and went to his trunk and felt for the little square house of painted tin with a slot in the chimney. It lay beneath his Sunday clothes, and he raised and gently shook it. He could hear that familiar and pleasant sound of the coin. Meanwhile his father had been sitting alone. For weeks he had been rapidly going downhill. His friends had all turned against him. He had been fairly stoned with reproaches. He could see only trouble behind, disgrace before, and despair on either side. He held a revolver in his hand. A child's voice rang out in the silence, calling, Father! Gordon leaned forward upon the table. He began to be conscious of things beyond himself. He heard the great mill saw roaring in the still night. He heard the tick of the clock near him. Suddenly his little son peered through the half-open door. "'Father!' Saki whispered. Gordon started from his chair, and seeing the boy, sat down again. Saki was near crying, but restrained himself. Without a word he deposited his bank on the table. It was a moment of solemn renunciation. He was like one before the altar giving up the vanities of the world. He looked soberly at his father and said, "'I'm going to give you all my money.' Gordon said not a word, and there was a moment of silence. "'More than a dollar in it,' the boy suggested proudly. Still his father sat resting his head upon his hand in silence while he seemed to be trying the point of a pen. "'You may give me five cents if you've a mind to when you open it,' Saki added. Gordon turned slowly and kissed the forehead of his little son. The boy put his arms around the neck of his father and begged him to come and lie upon the bed and tell a story. So it happened the current of ruin was turned aside the heat-oppressed brain diverted from its purpose. For as the man lay beside his children, he began to think of them and less of himself. "'I cannot leave them,' he concluded. "'When I go, I shall take them with me.' In the long, still hours he lay thinking. The south wind began to stir the pines and cool air from out of the wild country came through an open window. Fathoms of dusty dead air which had hung for weeks over the valley, growing hotter and more oppressive in the burning sunlight, moved away. 
a cloud passing northward flung a sprinkle of rain upon the broad smoky flats and was drained before it reached the great river all who were sick and weary felt the ineffable healing of the woodland breeze it soothed the aching brain of the mill owner and slackened the ruinous toil of his thoughts gordon slept soundly for the first time in almost a month End of chapter 1